Hello, this is Victoria, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from the May 8th issue of the Toronto Star on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. City of Toronto honors the coronation of King Charles III. On May 6th, the City of Toronto will commemorate the coronation of King Charles III and Her Majesty the Queen with the raising of the Canadian coronation flag and ceremonial planting of an oak tree at Coronation Park along the shore of Lake Ontario. Deputy Mayor Jennifer McLeavy, Scarborough, Rouge Park, will be joined by the Nutella Governor of Ontario, the Honourable Elizabeth Dodswell, for the occasion. Notably, the ceremony follows the designation of the oak tree as Toronto's official tree and a boreal emblem almost a year ago. On May 6th and 7th, the Toronto Stein and Nathan Phillips Square, the Prince's Gates and Exhibition Place, and other landmarks across Canada will be lit emerald green to mark the occasion as part of the National Illumination Initiative. The green colour, seen on the Canadian coronation emblem and represented by the oak tree, is associated with environment, as long championed by His Majesty. Ajax Art is selected to give painting to King Charles III for his coronation. As Ajax Artist painting will join the ranks of the works by Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, and Titan, as it joins the most extensive private art collection in the world and is owned by the British royal family. His painting, A Gift to King Charles III, will be housed in the Royal Collection Trust at Windsor Castle. Neville Clark, a Jamaican-born artist who immigrated to Canada in 1974, has lived in Ajax for 34 years and has been selected as a part of a small group of renowned Canadian artists to send a gift of their artwork for the coronation celebration on Saturday, May 6. The coronation of the king is once in a lifetime, spectacular event, and it gives me great pleasure to be honoured to honour this momentous occasion of King Charles III, he says. I'm delighted to be one of the seven exceptional Canadian artists asked to participate in the gifting of a watercolour painting for this special occasion. Clark has achieved widespread recognition for his artwork, including membership to the Ontario Society of Arts and the Canadian Society of Painters in Watercolour, CSPWC, where he served as president from 2001 to 2003. King Charles III, who loves to paint, is an honorary member of the CSPWC. This group was founded by a group of seven members, Franklin Carmichael and A.J. Kansen, in 1925. <clears throat> this is not the first time Clark has gifted a work of art to this royal family member. In 2001, he presented a collection of watercolour paintings to HRH, the Prince of Wales, on behalf of the CSPWC 75th anniversary at Canada House in London, England. The then Prince invited artists back to his home in High Grove and gave them a guided tour. This included a look at his private sanctuary, where he escaped for silence or to pray, a look at the soil irrigation that was taking place on his property, or a stop in the bathroom that was so large to fit all ten of them. It was an excellent time, to be honest with you, Clark recalls. He also has a great sense of humor. Clark and other artists also got to see the then Prince's art collections, including his own watercolor paintings he created during his travels to different countries, including a small watercolor he painted in Vancouver. His works were quite good in terms of the executions, his compositions, Clark says. 
The 18 by 12 inch watercolor painting Clark is giving to the king is entitled Eloquence, which he created in 2001. That painting I gave was one of my daughter, was especially part of an exhibit years ago in Calgary, he says. It was one that actually was special to me. Clark's artwork can also be found in public institutions such as the Varley Art Gallery, Helsing Gallery, City of Toronto, the Guelph Art Gallery, Thames Art Gallery, Genbog Museum, and Arts and Letters Club. Clark's portrait of novelist Austin Clark is currently on full display at the Sigmund Samuel Gallery at the Royal Ontario Museum. A typical school gives paper crane as charity as symbols of hope. The school of Megan Hugs began with origami paper cranes. It is Our Lady of Soros Catholic School's legacy. On Friday, the typical students presented 1,000 origami paper cranes they made to Megan's mom, Denzi Bebnik, founder and president of the Megan Be Bebnik Foundation, which raises awareness of and funds for the pediatric brain tumor research and spreads a message of hope to families. Our Lady of Soros students present, present their sick classmate, Megan, with more than 1,000 origami cranes with messages of love and support written on them in the photo. Japanese legends tell that the recipient of 1,000 paper cranes will be granted a wish. Denise Bebnik left, founder of Megan Hub, the signature event of Megan Bebnik Foundation after losing her daughter, Megan, two weeks before the, her fifth birthday to an inoperable brain tumor in 2001. The foundation raises funds for pediatric brain tumor research and spreads hope to families fighting the disease. More than two decades ago, on a sunny spring day, students had presented 1,000-plus origami paper cranes they had made, inscribed with notes of love and support to their classmate, four-year-old Megan. The children sang a hymn about peace and formed a circle around Megan. Then, each student hugged her. Megan died of an inoperable brain tumor on Father's Day, 2001, just two weeks past her fifth birthday. On Friday, May 5th, students form a school hug on their playing field, part of the foundation's Kids Helping Kids school program. Denise Bevnik spoke to the students about compassion and the very important message of hope that they were sharing together. She told them the story of Sadako and the Thousand Paper Cranes. She shared how, how Sadako, who had leukemia from atomic bomb radiation, made paper cranes, hoping that she got to 1,000 like Japanese legend holds, her wish would come true, and she would be here. Sadako's story inspired Our Lady of Sorrows community in May 2001, when Margaret Wiley and her classmates started making paper cranes as a message of hope and love for our family, and she is now a very special member of Megan's Hug, Bebnik said. Megan was only four years old when she got sick. She needed hope and comfort. I needed hope and comfort. And the school gave her that on that day. When you give someone cranes, it means you're praying for them and you wish them well. Bemnick thanks students. Our Lady of Sorrows, you lead by example, she said. You show students, schools, and community that are and our roles now that you act with generosity and kindness. You watch out for those among you who may need a helping hand, a friend, a caring comment. It means that you show how to be compassionate to a community member. 
Megan Bennett Foundation has raised more than $6 million for pediatric brain tumor research, established Megan Hugs Neuro-Oncology Fellowship, a robust school program called Kids Helping Kids, an annual crane ceremony, and a year-round community events. Megan's Walk and Hug, the Foundation's signature annual event, takes place on Saturday, May 3rd, May 13th. Participants walk five kilometers from Fort York to the Hospital for Sick Children, where they hold hands in a circle of hope and hug the patients, doctors, nurses, and researchers inside. Wiley said in an interview before the crane ceremony she had baked cookies for Megan, but wanted to do more. She heard about Sadako, and a sibling had taught her to make organic cranes. Soon, all the grade 8 students were teaching younger students how to make origami cranes, she said. It's been really neat to see how little things can turn into big things if you let people help, Wiley said on the school field before the hug and crane ceremony. Everyone embraced a small idea, and Denise and Megan's hug have made so it's so much bigger. What Denise and the whole team has created is simply amazing. Parents Jacqueline Brown and Kate Marceau, new school co-chairs of a Megan's Hug committee, have sons in junior kindergarten. It has been an incredible journey for us to learn about Megan, the foundation, and this cause, Brown said. I'm a physician, so things involving children's health care, children who are sick, Sick Kids Hospital has a special place in my heart, Marsu said. I tell my son there are other people out there who need our help. We're so fortunate. This rule is perfect. It fits my beliefs and my values. Toronto police issue alert after rise in roofing scam occurrences. Police are seeing an increase in roofing scams in Toronto and are offering tips to prevent people from becoming victims. Toronto police said the scams involve a person attending the home unsolicited and advising that the roof needs urgent repairs or offering to inspect the roof for damage. The person will identify themselves as a professional roofer, may claim to work for a reputable company, and will offer to make any necessary repairs. The police said in a news release, a large down payment is often requested to pay for supplies. The end result involves consumers paying for unnecessary repairs or work isn't done at all, and the individual hired to do the work disappears with a down payment, police said. Here are prevention tips offered by the police. Be wary of unsolicited persons offering a service such as roof repairs. Don't be rushed into making a decision. Look for paperwork such as contracts with a company letterhead to it. Contact the alleged company by phone to ensure that the person is employed by them. Don't provide large down payments. Police said they typically see a rise in roofing scams in the spring as the weather gets warmer and are advising anyone who was a victim of one to come forward. Anyone with information is asked to call the Financial Crimes Unit at 416-808-7300. That is 416-808-7300. Or Crime Stoppers Anonymously at 416-222-TIPS, extension number 8477. <clears throat> Canada is a step closer to, gro to grocery code regulating supermarket power over supplies. 
Small suppliers say consolidation allows grocers to charge high fees that limit produce selection and push prices higher. Grocery code of conduct would be set rules of engagement, they said. Canada is a step closer to establishing its first ever set of grocery and industry rules in a, bar, in a bid to even out power imbalances for both food producers and grocers in a market dominated by five supermarket chains. An industry group is set up to hammer out a Canadian grocery code of conduct has reached a milestone with the proposed final version seen by the star that includes a process to resolve disputes and impose sanctions on systematic violators. The code stops a short of imposing fines on companies that fail to adhere to its principles, but establishes an adjudicator office to settle disputes. The code is about good business practices and creating a balance in the supply-retailer relationship, said Michael Graydon, CEO of Supplier, Industry Food, Health and Consumer Products of Canada, and co-chair of the code's 10-person steering committee. Many smaller smooth suppliers say that they endured years of unfair industry practices and supply chain bullying under Canada's highly consolidated food retail market, including high fees to access store shelves, unexplained chargeback fines that shave thousands of invoices, and month-long payment delays. Loblo companies, Empire Company, which owns Sobeys, Metro, and Walmart, command roughly 70% of the market according to a U.S. Department of Agriculture report, and industry observers have cautioned that the trend of big grocers using their market weight to impose fees without negotiation could lead to less competition, higher food costs, and fewer brands on store shelves for consumers. Canada's leading food retailers counter that supply fees and fines are fair, long-standing industry practice that helps ensure that shipments from suppliers are complete and arrive on time. Loblaw, Sovi, Metro, and Walmart Canada did not respond with ed- to inquiries on whether they would adhere to the code and its rules, which stipulate that charges for programs such as stocking, listing, positioning, promotions, market costs, unsellables, and shrinkage must be contractual. Charges are expected to have reasonable substantiation in significant detail and in an effective format for verification of the deduction or invoice, the code says. Despite criticism that the voluntary code has no teeth and is not government-led, some members of the code steering committee say they're optimistic. The code, they say, will be up for review in 18 months and can be amended at the time if needed. We've committed to trying this as an industry on a voluntary basis, Graydon said. There's enough substance within the provisions that there will be a cultural transition that we are looking for. Gary Sands, a member of the committee and a senior vice president at the Canadian Federation of Independent Grocers, which represents more than 6,000 independently owned and operated grocery stores across the country, says that the industry is taking a leap of faith. The industry coming together to build this document is a recognition that things have to change, Sands said. We have to do better, and we can do better. However, Diane Brisbois President and CEO of Retail Council of Canada, which represents the country's largest grocers, said there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. A consultation process on the proposed code is open to food industry members until May 30th. Brisbane said in an interview that there needs to be very clear and simple processes in place to manage disputes so that no one is mired in red tape. The grocer's aim is to ensure that the code will ultimately benefit consumers, she added.
the issue of supplier grocery disputes came to a head in 2020 when Walmart Canada announced a fee hike that prompted United Grocers, a national buying group that represents Metro, to tell suppliers it is expected the same. Within months, Loblaw moved in the same direction, telling suppliers the cost of getting products on shelves would rise to help fund improvements to the grocers' in-store and digital and, and digital e-commerce operations. The last formal review of Canada's Competition Act included in 2008. Meanwhile, governments and regulators in countries such as the UK and Australia have studied their competition laws and has led to legislative action. The UK's Mandatory Grocery Supplies Code of Practice allows policymakers to place restrictions on the purchasing activities of the biggest supermarket chains in the country to protect suppliers from some of their most extreme buying practices. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Toronto Star on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Jobs available in Toronto's 2023 by-election for the mayor. Applicants can now register and book an interview for temporary paid positions in the 2023 mayoral by-election. Voting place elections officials will help Toronto residents vote in person during six advanced voting days from Thursday, June 8th to Tuesday, June 13th, and on election day, Monday, June 26th. Available positions include ballot officers, tabulator officers, customer service officers, and standby officers. Successful applicants will enhance their skills in customer service, problem solving, and teamwork, a recent city release said. Anyone who is at least 18 years of age and is legally eligible to work in Canada can apply. Role responsibilities, requirements, pay, and time commitments, including training and working hours, are available on the Toronto Elections Employment webpage. Applicants will be assigned roles based on their knowledge, experience, and availability of positions at the time of their interview. Best efforts will be made to place applicants at a voting location closest to their identified home address, the release added. Those without access to the internet or computer, or who require assistance, can call the recruitment line at 416-338-1111 or press 2-TY-416-338-0889. National Day Awareness for a Missing and a Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls How This Activist is Healing Her Community The National Day of Awareness for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls and the Two-Spirit People is a time to come together to tune in to all that has been lost. But for some Indigenous activists, such as Faith Rivers, a traditional healer in training with the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation, Remembering began before even wakes up, before one even wakes up. For her, each part of the day is imbued with ceremony. Rivers, 56-year-old, who is also serves as a supervisor of the mental health team in her community, where she lives in her reserve, explains how she takes time throughout the day to heal her community. When I wake up on National Day of Awareness for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, I wear red clothing and jewelry. I have all kids of red tops, red wraps. I have a special heart-shaped necklace. Red is the color of murdered and missing women, but is also the color of blood. 
Her day will start off with a tobacco offering to ask the spirits to come in and the ancestors to help with our understanding, with our grieving process, and with our way of being as Indigenous people, she says. I will put the tobacco on my left hand and make that the intention. Medicines also need instruction, just like people. The traditional word for tobacco is sema. I will put my prayers in there to bring peace for the people who have murdered and missing Indigenous women in their lives. And to bring that and calmness to people and to bring that calmness to people's lives, even though they're grieving their people. Then it's time for breakfast, which will consist of strawberries and blueberries, she said. It is important to eat anything traditional that has grown here. Strawberries are always in the feast because it's a heart medicine, in the shape of a heart. Blueberries are the medicine of the bear. Bear is my clan. Within the bear clan, we are medicine keepers. Throughout the day, Rivers will focus on saying prayers for her community. I asked Mother Earth to bring about all the things I spoke of, and I would smudge, to offer myself first to the Creator, then to the ancestors, and to all of my women and Indigenous girls who have gone missing or murdered. Other people may not know I'm doing it, but I do it. No one needs to know what I'm doing, but that's what I do for myself and my community to help bring about that change, those feelings of grief and loss. Ford government to conduct Bill 23 audits in Toronto, Brampton, Mississauga, and Caledon. The provincial government said it's part it's part partnering with six GT municipalities to assist the impact of municipal revenues for its more home built faster act, other known otherwise known as Bill 23. In a release on May 4th, the provincial government under Premier Doug Ford announced it will be conducting third-party audits in Toronto, Brampton, Mississauga, Caledon, and Newmarket. The region of Peel, which is the upper-tier regional municipality for Mississauga, Caledon, and Brampton, will also be included in the audits. We are working with our municipal partners to get a factual understanding of their finances to ensure development charges and ability to invest in local services and projects that are supporting rather hindering are supporting rather than hindering housing supply growth. The Ontario Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing, Steve Clark, in the release. This is critical to ensuring all levels of government work together to ca- tackle the housing supply crisis and reach a goal of 1.5 million homes by 2031, he added. Peel Region and the five cities in town included in the audits raised concern when Bill 23 passed and received royal assent at the end of November 2022. The legislation made major changes to the province's development charges and planning acts. The charges enacted in Bill 23 limit municipalities' ability to change development charges, DCs, on housing considered affordable. Brampton city staff told council last year that Bill 23 charges in the definition of affordable housing from being tied to income to being market value. Today, an affordable house in Brampton is approximately $400,000 to purchase. With this new legislation, an affordable house will be upward to $800,000. And a former director of city planning and design, Andrew McNeil, adding Bill 23 exempts developers from paying DCs or any housing construction below the new market value base threshold. 
and a result of the expected losses in DC revenues, municipal governments in the Peel region across the province have lost in DC revenue and will make building the infrastructure to support 1.5 million new homes and accompanying population growth across the province impossible. Given the concerns the town has expressed over Bill 23 in our housing pledge, we welcome the audit, said Caledon Mayor Annette Groves in a separate release. This process will assess the impact of the bill in a greenfield growth community like ours, where infrastructure and community anemones are needed for new development.